So and I give a correct answer, but we'll give you an answer. Yeah, we'll give some kind of an answer. If you ask us who won the Super Bowl, we will almost certainly not give you the correct answer on that because I don't know. Did. Someone won the Super Bowl. I'm not even sure if we've had a Super Bowl this year already or or not. Usually I would know that because people would invite to Super Bowl parties, but that didn't happen this last year, so I don't know. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together, we are the bald economists, the bald duo, standing forth to exercise our diligent eco-rights, and by eco-rights, I don't mean uh, anything but economics there that's that was that like 1950s radio enough mm, uh, you, you weren't quite there but then again you didn't get to hear it no i i can hear myself speaking yeah but you didn't get to hear the radio in the ah, 1950s uh, that's probably why i'm off yeah uh, this is the personal wealth coach and we are here to talk to you about finance and economics uh we're talking about where we stand on the world stage and on your own living room stage. Do you, do you have a stage in your living room? Actually, I don't. I don't know. I mean, Shakespeare said the whole world is a stage. So there is a world stage. Uh, can you start with the disclosure? The Personal Wealth Coach is not only the name of this radio program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisor based in Salado, Texas. And so we say SEC registered because that's our regulator. And we are registered with the SEC, which means we have more than $100 million under management. But the SEC neither approves nor disapproves of anything we do. The SEC does well. The SEC can readily disapprove of things, but they never approve of anything anybody does. So that that's okay. We do not pay for this radio program. It is uh, we don't pay KTEM. We don't pay Town Square Media. We don't pay anybody for this radio program. Neither do they pay us. And we've been doing it for twenty-seven years or something like that now. A long time long time and we've never been paid for it and they've never paid us for it no they we've never been paid for it and we've never paid them for it that's how it goes we do advertise on ktem generally we advertise for the radio program um let's see what else is there the information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable but there's no warranty or guarantee implied or made as to the accuracy or completeness of said information and the information we've present on this radio program is not investment advice it's educational yeah. investment advice is given only to people individually based on their circumstances individual circumstances right and you like that great and you did that very well and just to let you know why he was laughing and why i had to jump off for the disclosure is that my almost two-year-old uh was coming into the room to be on the radio which i probably could have let him he probably could fill us all in on human nature and why the markets are as weird as they are. You probably do a better job than we would. I think so. I think if you come at it from a two-year-old perspective, it makes sense. It's, you just realize if someone else has a toy, it's more valuable if they're holding it than if they're not holding it. If you want something, then you should demand it really loudly. 
And if that doesn't work, you should approach with doe-like eyes and, um, and hug a bit. And there's the economy, writ large. Yeah, I guess it's in a nutshell. Well, where do we get started? Oh, man. We just, what happened this week? We, we had a lot happen this week. Well, the market went up and down quite a lot this week. And there was a lot of alarmist headlines about the market, about a big market decline in the middle of the week because of the incipient inflation that was going to come and the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates and they're going to wreck the economy. And so the markets dropped about 1.4% at that point. At least the S&P 500 did. Dow jumped, dropped about the same amount. And then the Fed notes were released the next day from their last meeting and Federal Reserve notes were meet pointed out that they weren't too concerned about inflation and that they weren't in any big hurry to raise interest rates and that they were watching the economy very carefully. Right. And then the market went back up again. And then the Bitcoin sell-off, and cryptocurrencies in general sell-off started, and it's, that's, uh, that caused the market to dip a little bit again. Now, why the stock market dips because cryptos are selling off is uh, – basically herd behavior because a lot of the people who invest in speculate in not a lot, but at least some of the people who speculated in the uh, stock market who are just, who don't understand anything about stocks and would readily tell you they understand nothing about stocks, but they, they buy it because it goes up when it, when it doesn't go up, they don't buy it or they, they sell, sell it. it. Yeah. Which is kind of the opposite of buy low, sell high. Just, but, in uh, fact, not just kind of, it is absolutely the opposite of buy low, sell high. 30% sell off in Bitcoin, for example, and said, oh, there must be something wrong and sold some of their stocks so the stock market went down a little bit. Anyway, the stock market ended the week only down 0.43%, despite the, oh, the seesawing up and down it did during the week. It's 1.81% down from its record high close of 4282.6 on May 7th. It's at 41, the S&P 500 is at 4155.86. I don't know if you remember when it went through 4,000. I kind of made a mental note when it goes through one of the 1,000 marks so I can see it, but it hasn't even come close to that again, which is good. The index, the S&P 500 is up 10.64% year to date. The market is looking for something to be afraid of. That was yeah. the consensus and heard on the street from the Wall Street Journal. And I completely agree with it. The market is the people who trade around the edge of the market. And that's the people that most of the people in any given day don't buy or sell stocks. Most of the, most, not only most of the people, most of the institutionals don't buy or sell stocks very much in the free any given day. But there's a few people near the edge who do a lot of buying and selling, and you say near the edge, that push the market up and down. Yeah, it's and, people that trade every day that cause the prices to move. The people that are holding for long periods don't move the market until they're buying or selling. So most of the day-to-day -day market movement are those people on the edges. They're, they don't make up the majority of the market, but they do make up the majority of the trades in the market. The fact that the market is skittish and there's so many headlines about fear that the market will go down because it's overpriced, it really isn't that overpriced. Uh, it's well within the within the confines of historic price-to-earnings ratios right now because the entry, in, because we've had some record high earnings come in from some of the retail big retail stores. And why do I think that's important more than the others? Because our economy is about 67% retail. We're 67% consumer-based economy, which is what drives our economy. Amazon uh, reported record earnings, record revenues, record everything. Walmart came in quite high. So did uh, Target. Those are indicators that the economy is still roaring along. More than that, the CEOs in all three cases predicted, and they had to be very careful what they predict, by the way, under the law, 
they had every reason to believe that we were going to see increased sales through the rest of the year. So everything looks good in the economy, but the market kind of spooked a little bit. That's a good sign. A bear market, a bill bump, sorry, a bull market climbs a wall of worry is an old saw on Wall Street, and it's very, very true. And I can give you- you as long as the market gets spooked easily, you're probably in pretty good shape. Yeah, and this this is kind of to to walk through the emotional cycle of a spooked semi uh, amateur retail investor. They just started this up. They dumped a bunch of money in during the middle of the pandemic, and they watched their fortunes grow a lot. They're really really bullish, and they've got a little extra money, and they keep putting it in there. But then. That some of the stuff that they started putting money in started dropping. And this is sad truth. There are surveys to back this up. Many of the people that are investing in cryptocurrency, you kind of alluded to this earlier, um, know as much about cryptocurrency as they do about the stocks that they're investing in, which is to say nothing. Nothing they're, at all. You're they're right. buying it based on what the returns have been le- lately, which is, in essence, one of the biggest disservices we as Americans do to each other is the biggest and best investment education most people get is their um, 401k choices. And what is given for them to dis- to define their 401k choices are the one, three, and five-year returns. And whenever, when that's the only information that's given to them, people say, well, I'm going to pick the best returns. Well, that's the definition of buying high. If you're buying the things that have come up the most and you think that's the trend, that's what we're training people in America to do by accident. Nobody's doing this intentionally, or maybe they are, I doubt it. But the vast majority of Americans are learning to pick their investments based on how well they've done recently rather than what is it they're trying to accomplish or what is it that I'm buying. So the this kind of emotional cycle is I'm doing well, I'm doing well, but I feel like this is a little too good to be true. What? I'm going to, whoa, something's going on with Bitcoin. Something's going on with Ethereum. I'm going to pull out of the market. And that's what we're seeing. That What you said, the market's looking for something to be afraid of. We're also fairly well trained from infancy to not expect good things to go on forever. Once we get into that mentality where we're saying this is going to last forever, it's the greatest, most amazing thing we'll ever have, and it'll just stay going forever, that's the top of the market. When people are still going, whoa, this is a little too good, what's going on here? We still have more bull left. And that, that is based on, you know, there's a very vague terminology, but it's based on lots and lots of research on how people act in past bull markets and why it is that they make the decisions that they make. A huge amount of the volume of trades right now are not institutional traders. It's like 25% of the market volume right now is individual retail investors. That's typically around 6% of the market trades. We're up at 25%. What that means is that we're going to have a lot more volatility in the market for a while. It's going to be bumpy, Uh, but there's also a lot of cash in the market. And this is another thing, and the SEC is talking about this, and some of the journals, some of the even main journals, like Wall Street Journal, are talking about 
a lot of the people that got into the market during the pandemic have been burned in some way and have completely gotten out of all versions of the market, Bitcoin, crypto, stock market, everything, because they've been burned. And the SEC is really concerned about this because if that's their only experience in investing in our economy and it's this massively negative one, it can sour them on the whole, their whole future, on, on being able to plan appropriately for retirement. For it, it puts them in a great deal of danger. I read in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, and I don't know where that their source was. It was a quote, but I don't know where the guy's source was where he found the data. But 46% of the people who own Bitcoin right now are holding it at a loss. Yeah. The same thing, the same very similar percentage is true in, uh, in, in uh, GameStop. Yeah. And I think because when the news is going the strongest on the subject is when most people are buying and it goes strongest on the subject when it's doing something astronomically strange, like reaching into the stratosphere, it's like marketing to buy it. If, especially if we're training people to buy their 401k based on what's the highest return of out of all my choices, I'll go with that one. Well, that's not how you pick it. You should understand why the return was there, not just that it was there. The same thing can happen in stocks. Back in the 1990s, uh, I encountered some people who had uh, Texas Instrument stock because they used to work for Texas Instrument, and they said they were they were unhappy because it had gotten to $100 a share. It was down to about 40 at the time that I met with them. And when it had gotten to $100 a share, and they said they should have sold it $100, and I said that probably was a good idea. And they said they're going to wait till it gets to $100 again to sell. Well, that was uh, 22, 23 years ago. And uh, it has never gotten back to $100. They didn't understand that the price doesn't go to $100 just because it goes to $100. It goes to $100 on expected earnings. And TI was a, a company that was gradually fading from the center of the tech, technical revolution at the time. And it was very unlikely to come back. And, of course, it didn't come back. And uh, that's one of the things that I think most people understand about stock prices. Is stock prices... In the long run, and that's an important thing, in the long run are driven by whatever it is underneath them. Whatever it is is driving that stock price, it's earnings or valuation of the assets they have or something. And at least that's the, that's the history of the market. Right. A lot of people think prices are driven by prices. That's momentum investing. And they are in the short term. But you never can tell where it's going to turn around, and you've got to be the first one out. And that's really hard to do if you're an amateur. Exactly. It's hard to do with your professional, for that matter. Yeah, and this is a conversation I had with a client yesterday that one of the things that defines a professional is they know why they're going to sell something before they buy it. Now, even Warren Buffett, who's saying, I'm going to hold this for a long period of time, I'm going to make this better, knows that once he's made it better, he may sell it. That's why he would sell it. When he's built it into something better than it was, he'd sell it then. If you're talking about you're just your standard investor saying, hey, I think this stock is worth this much and it's trading down below that. I'm going to buy it. And when it gets to the point where I think it's worth what it's worth, I'll sell it. People tend to, amateur investors tend to move the goalposts. They look at the how high they got and say that's where it is. And part of that same conversation yesterday with the client was him being told by one of his friends who invested just over $10,000 and uh, at the top of the market had about $700,000 worth of Bitcoin. And he's saying he should get into Bitcoin too, he should get into Bitcoin too. 
Well, I asked the client, did he sell it at 700000 And he said, no, it's down to around 300000 at this point. And I say, well, by anybody's reckoning, 11000 to 300000 is still a massive growth. Do you think he's going to get out? And the answer was he'll probably get back out when it's at 700000 And my answer to that is he probably won't. He'll get to 700000 and think it'll keep coming. Let me correct myself. TI stock, TXN specifically, is at $185.01. It crossed in December 29th, 2017. It crossed above 100 again. It only took you 17 18, years, 18 years, 17, 18 years to wait for you. If, if people did indeed wait until they crossed 100 again, they could have sold it at 100. Matter of fact, it's up to 185 now. And uh, so TI stock eventually did come back. The problem was they had to wait 18 years for it. And I don't think very many of them did. I think that's, I think that's the, the truth. So let's let's talk about some more of this cool news that's out there for this week. There's a lot going on in the world. We we had April, we added about 266,000 jobs and we were pretty disappointed with that number. Those those that listened last week and the week before, you know, the majority of the predictor types in the economic economics group were saying they expected around 700,000 or a million jobs. There's a pretty good range. Instead, 266,000. So we said we need to watch this because if this is the trend going forward, if we have a much slower process in getting people hired than expected, this is going to be a telling thing. But we don't know if it's a trend or a one-time event. Well, this last week's jobs came out. You, You wanted to add something? We didn't give our email addresses. Oh, that's right. If you'd like to join the conversation, we have emails that we are reading. Uh, if you would like to ask us a question or make a comment, uh, the email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. Or jake at tpwc.com, and we will answer your question. So we not give a correct answer, but we'll give you an answer. Yeah, we'll give some kind of an answer. If you ask us who won the Super Bowl, we will almost certainly not give you the correct answer on that because I don't know. Did. Someone won the Super Bowl. Some uh, team did. I'm not even sure if we've had a Super Bowl this year already or or not. Usually I would know that because people would invite to Super Bowl parties, but that didn't happen this last year, so I don't know. Who won? Was it even basketball again this year? I don't know. We don't We don't know that stuff, but we do know stuff about the economy, and what we're looking at here this last month's or this last week's jobless claims were down. There's still about double a really bad month pre-pandemic, a little more than double, but it's a lot better than 30 or 40 times pre-pandemic levels, which was what we were seeing as kind of the normal during this pandemic where our new jobless claims are dropping. Um, we've talked about this over the last several weeks that about 25% of people on unemployment now are accepting that higher benefit from some government or another, only about a quarter of them. So people that say this is the reason why people aren't going back to work, just know that 75% of the people on unemployment aren't getting that extra benefit. They aren't on, they aren't on unemployment. They're just unemployed. Right. Exactly. That unemployment benefit would be on unemployment. Right. About 75% of the people who are unemployed, who are listed as unemployed when we look at the 6.1% unemployment rate, 
are not receiving any unemployment check. And the problem with not receiving any unemployment checks, they don't have any money. And that's obviously an interesting, there's an argument, in it, and it's a good argument that the people who are receiving the 300 extra dollars, I'm, and we made an argument, we showed that in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago, that basically a person who was making $15 an hour working 40 hour a week in Texas before the pandemic with the state unemployment and with the federal unemployment supplement going with him was actually making more money not working than he was working. Of course, that's about to be cut off. There's a, there's a problem with that theory that the unemployment benefits are causing the problem. Uh, Australia and England who don't have the unemployment benefit Right. Matter of fact, in, in Australia, they, they basically killed all their supplemental unemployment in March. They still have 40% more job openings in, than they had before the pandemic, and they're unable to fill them. So whatever's going on is going on globally, at least among the developed countries. That, that somebody, is, somebody tell me what it is. Well, what, what is? What the problem is, uh, there's, we have 80, roughly 80 million people who are unemployed. Eight million. Eight, eight, I'm sorry, eight million. Yeah, eight million. We have eight million people who are unemployed. We have about eight million job openings. Now, some of those are mismatches. Obviously, if you're if the job opening is for an engineer and you're a carpenter, that doesn't work real well. Or if it's in St. Louis and you live in Texas, that doesn't work real well. Well, you two, use two examples there that are probably not the issue. I, I agree. The, that's not the, the issue. And that's your you made a really good segue there. And that segue was that if you're an engineer or a carpenter, you're not looking for work right now. The work's looking for you. And what we have is a shortage of skilled labor. Uh, where The people that lost their jobs, the vast majority of people that lost their jobs during the pandemic were people that didn't have college educations. The, the, the high, highest hit are people that didn't even have a, a high school education. There's a lot of employers, some of them locally that I've talked to, who are having a problem because they can't find unskilled labor. They can't find anybody to work, period. That, that is, matter of fact, right now, that is the greatest shortage. The problem is, why are the unskilled labor force, any of whom are not drawing unemployment, why are they not back at work? And there's a couple of hypotheses running around out there you might want to talk about them oh yeah um there's a lot well the number one hypothesis is hypothesis is lack of child care this is an area people say why is there a lack of child care a lot of child care facilities shut down during the pandemic a lot of them and they haven't started back up yet because people haven't gone back to work yet. And people haven't gone back to work yet because they don't have a child care facility. So we have this feedback loop where you don't have child care, which keeps you from going to work. But because you don't have, you're not going to work, you don't tell people at a child care facility that they need to hire more people so that you can leave your child there. It gets worse than that. Yeah. Child care facility has to have a place to take care of the children, which means they had to have a lease. And since everybody stayed at home, they didn't have anybody coming in and bringing their children to be taken care of. And they couldn't anyway. That was forbidden for a while. So they probably weren't able to pay their lease and lost it. As a result, it's really hard to get a child care business started again. It has, that takes capital. and takes a lot of venture. And banks are not real crazy about loaning money to somebody that just went out of business. Or nearly went out of business. Reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the Small Business Administration has emergency loans that are helpful, but they're difficult. 
they take a long time to go through. When you apply for them, you've got weeks and weeks and weeks where you don't even know if they've accepted it. It says processing. How do I know this? Because I'm intimately familiar with childcare in a nonprofit sense. It's chairman of a board of a nonprofit uh, preschool. What that says is that, number one, when we talk about a K-shaped economy where one side of the economy is doing really well and another side of the economy is doing really, really poorly, when we look at finance and we look at the amount of investments that, that have taken place over the, the pandemic period, huge amounts of money have flowed into the marketplace. So those that are associated with that, the majority of people that kept, well, the people that kept their jobs, and the Wall Street Journal has a great survey on this, had their finances improved during the pandemic. And a lot of cases improved drastically during the pandemic. And people are saying, how did that happen? Well, they weren't going out to eat. They were paying down their credit cards because they were afraid that maybe they'd lose their job. They didn't wind up losing their job, but now they paid down all their credit card debts. They weren't going out to eat. They didn't buy a car. So they've got a lot of cash in the bank. This is the same reason why there's a lot more people investing in the market. They're experiencing this amazing feeling of doing better in their finances than they've ever had. And then the flip side of that is the people that did lose their jobs that are having trouble going back to work because the low cost childcare is not there. The higher cost childcare is still around. They had enough reserves to make it through. Well, this is the issue. This is the when we have 8 million job openings and 8 million people unemployed, you well, it looks like there's no problem. But the people that they're asking for aren't able to get to the work, either because if it's an unskilled position, because they don't have childcare, that's only one of many pieces. There is a factor. We, we kind of say it's less than what a lot of people think on excess payments from the government. The group of people that if, if you're getting more payment by not going to work than you would by going to work, well, you're obviously incentivized to stay at home. So that's a factor. It's just not as big as a lot of people think. It's a small portion of the unemployment pool. We're about to test that. 21 governors have cut off the supplemental payments, which means it's, they basically cut unemployment in half for low-income people. So we'll see if suddenly in a month from now we see uh, employment jump Right, and all of a sudden, employees are available everywhere. Then it was the unemployment insurance. So I, I really don't like I said. I don't think it is because they cut off the un- excess unemployment insurance in Australia, and it didn't it didn't solve the problem at all. Right, and they're having the same problem in England, by the way. And, and clubs, this, right. clubs cannot get the number of employees they had before the pandemic. And this is all related to the same things. We've got a couple of questions from John. It's all supply chain. In this case, it's the labor supply chain. You have to have childcare before you can have labor. And that, in a traditional method in the economy, is it slowly adds capacity as people are slowly added to the workforce. But when you yank them all out of the workforce at the same time, and you yank all of the childcare facilities, or a large portion of them, out of the workforce at the same time, it's really hard to balance the reintroduction of those people back in really critical information piece that we've avoided assiduously. What's that? The Super Bowl 2021 was won by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Did somebody just tell you that? No, I just looked you, it up. You looked it up? 
I looked it up on Google. If you had asked me if the Buccaneers or the Chiefs, what type of sport they played, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I would have guessed and probably gotten it wrong. Yep, me too. But I looked it up. I know that they're not a tennis team. There you go. Yeah, there you go. That's correct. And I, I don't think they're soccer. Not soccer, but some version of football. Now we know. We have Google, thank you. You have given us, for, our, for all intents and purposes to us, completely useless trivia. To yep. a lot of other people, it is very important. Now to the questions from John. Right. So when we're talking about supply chain issues with labor, when we're talking about it with other areas, uh, John's got a question in here about 10 and specifically, not 10, not the number 10. Uh, this, <laughs> our program has been brought to you today by the number 10 and by the letter A. Um, no, by the metal 10, T-I-N. Um, and he sends a, an article, and basically the Wall Street Journal says the headline is 10 Rises to Near Record, um, which sounds like clickbait. 10 Reasons Why You Rise to the near, Nearest... No, it does sound like clickbait, though. 10... All right, so, and his question is, the, the article is all based on this measurement that they're using for LME sheds in, in the UK, and elsewhere for that matter. Uh, but, but what is LME? What is, what is this concept? Um, London Metal Exchange Warehouses. We've talked about the uh, finance hubs of the world and Manhattan may be taking first place over London this year for the first time after Brexit. Uh, and people are like, what? London has been the financial capital of the world during all this time of American dominance? Yes, it has. One of the things that uh, is a factor in measurement of metal supplies is when you're buying and selling metal, it's very much like buying and selling a car. You actually have to put the metal somewhere. So a lot of times the seller will, will truck or ship the metal to an auction house. And that's what we're talking about here. It's a London Metal Exchange house. And it'll be labeled and uh, people will bid on that. Or once they buy it, they may leave it there for a while. But what we're seeing is a lot less metal in those, in those, in those warehouses. Uh, it's a good way of measuring metal supply everywhere. There's a lot of other places you can put metal, obviously. But it's a good place to see where people are buying and selling things. And there's a lot less buying and selling than there should be for the demand that we're seeing. It's kind of like global oil supply, which is measured. It's hard to tell how much there is in reserve around the globe. But what we can see very clearly is Cushing, Oklahoma, where there's a lot of tanks and a lot of oil is stored. Matter of fact, it is the principal oil storage facility in the United States, the largest oil storage facility in the United States, lots of tanks. And so by looking at the percentage of fullness the Cushing uh, tank farm is, is a pretty good indication of what the oil supply is for the United States and the United States oil supply. Uh, what we we're still the number one oil user in the world, so we that pretty much says what's going on around the world. So people pay a lot of attention to the, parent, the quantity of crude oil that's stored at Cushing, and that's kind of like yeah, the London Metal Exchange warehouses. That's that is a good answer for this. And the other question he has is a completely different subject, but it's a fantastic one. Let me talk about this subject just a little bit more. Why let's let's hit this. Yeah, let's let's hit this one more. Copper and tin and the other commodities. Why not oil? 
flies it up so much, so phenomenally much. Matter of fact, we mentioned in the newsletter that uh, a piece of lumber, a soft single board that a year ago cost $7 at Lowe's, now costs $51, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that housing starts has fallen off, at least anecdotally, uh, the surveys are hearing from builders that they simply can't afford to build a house because they look at the quantity, they look at the price of the raw material going into the house and look at the price they'll probably be able to sell the house for and they realize their profit margin got eaten up by the materials in the house. As high as housing prices have gone, the... Still not enough. You can't, I mean, we tell them it's $7 to $51. That's a seven times raise. The price of houses has not gone up by a factor of seven. So therefore, the people who are trying to build houses are finding the materials going into the house are costing more than the house is going to sell for. So they're they're slowing off on building houses. And and so this is a this is a great this is a great statistic to throw in here at this moment. Traditionally, the price of lumber is roughly seven percent of the house. It's closer to fifty percent now. That tells you that that tells you a big story. So so go ahead. So why are the prices going up across the board? Well, because we have this huge surge in demand. And it takes a while to spin up supply. And then that is compounded by the fact that many of the raw materials like copper and tin and other metals are manufactured or dug out of the ground someplace else in the world where the pandemic is still going strong. And it's really hard to get people to dig them out of the ground when they're sick or when they're afraid of being sick or when they're trying to practice social distancing. And it's hard to get people to drive the trucks around when they're sick or afraid of being sick. I mean, it's it's really, the pandemic is still going strong in many parts of the world. And we think, well, that's their problem. That's not our problem. Well, it is our problem because it costs a lot more to buy copper in the United States now than it used to. Yeah. Of course, there's some other cases like in China where they are consciously hoarding yeah. the stuff to raise the prices. There's a great, that, great article in the Wall Street Journal about that. Manganese is about 90% supplied by China and the Chinese government in the last six months has formed in essence, a cartel of its manganese production facilities and they're cooperating to set prices and to uh, they've, they've raised the price in the last six months, 50% simply by throttling down the amount of manganese that they're producing. When they produce 90% of the world's supply of manganese, well, why is manganese important? It goes into the steel in our cars. It goes into, uh, it's a, a massive replacement in the lithium-ion batteries of cobalt, which is much lighter and less expensive in a general sense. So it can make batteries cheaper and last longer. And the newer batteries are using it. So the Chinese government is doing something that is, what they were doing and hiding before the trade war is now out in the open. They are openly admitting that they are fixing the prices of these things. 80% of the manganese deposits in the world are in South Africa. Just the manufacturing goes on in, the, the mining and manufacturing goes on in China, and they kind of cornered that. It's kind of like OPEC with oil. It's not to say there wasn't more oil elsewhere. It's just a matter of people hadn't been willing to do the exploration because the price was too low. The problem with setting up a cartel, which they've done, and raising the price is eventually, immediately, that provides an incentive to people to start digging it out of the ground someplace else where they can find it and start manufacturing it somewhere else. That's why we had the fracking boom in the United States is because the price of oil got high enough because the cartel manipulated the prices. Well, eventually it became profitable to try a new technology, an expensive new technology. 
But the more you use a new technology, the less expensive it gets until fracking is now quite competitive with a lot of the other methods of getting oil and gas out of the ground. So now what happens in the manganese front, on the rare earths front? And we talked about that last week. There's plenty of rare earth. It's not rare. Uh, That's a misnomer. It's not a rare metal of any kind. It just... Uh, compared with dirt. It's rare compared with dirt. Rare compared to dirt. Why it's called rare is that it doesn't appear anywhere in lumps. So when you're mining for iron or for gold, you find lumps of the stuff in places. Rare earth is in the earth. So you have to refine it. You have to melt it down to get it to be anything. And Aluminum used to be in that family, just as a side note. Until we figured out how to electrically manufacture it, it it is not generally considered lumpy on the surface of the planet unless the ground got hit by lightning at some point. It used to be the most expensive metal on the planet. It is now the cheapest. So technology will be here to help us out of this, but we're still in this until the technology gets here. Uh, So just being aware that when we're talking about supply chain issues, there's a lot going on there. It's not just getting the supply chain set back up. There are a lot of companies that are taking advantage of these price fluctuations to say, I'm going to make as much money as I can during this time period, which from their perspective is the best decision they can be making from those of us that are trying to buy from them is not necessarily a good thing. So this is, we're, we're seeing a lot of fluctuations in prices that will hopefully lead long-term to a lot less fluctuations in prices in the future. If we look at the volatility of oil and gas prices during uh, the pre-fracking period and the post-fracking period, you'll see that things smoothed out when we had more supply positions. We had a massive trade war between Saudi Arabia and Russia at the beginning of the pandemic, and it had almost no effect on our day-to-day life because of the pandemic, because we had so much oil sitting around. So the price of oil dropped to negative. The only reason that that can happen is that there's a new player in the game. It's not just Saudi Arabia and Russia. It's down back to the United States. So if you'd like to join the conversation, our email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. And we'll be back on the other side of these, I'm sure, very important commercials from our sponsors. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McLure, the bald duo. We're here to educate you uh hopefully in a good way uh, not in the re-education type way on the world of finance and the economy um we have lots to talk about still uh the article i was talking about with the pandemic hit less educated workers harder um it's the same stuff that we said during the great recession it's the same thing that we will continue to say for probably forever, which is the more skills you have, the less likely you are to become unemployed, at least unintentionally, unintentionally unemployed. 
Unless you're a buggy whip, unless you're an expert buggy whip maker. Well, the more skills you have, the uh, more. I see what you mean, right? So the more, edu- the more education you have, generally speaking, the easier it is to find a job. Right, and the greatest skill to have is the ability to adapt skills, to go to something else, to connect what you already know to a new subject. Got another question from John, and we got one from Alan too. Yeah, we got a question from John. Are ESG returns really less? First, let's say, what is ESG? ESG. ESG. ESG is something, we were at a Morningstar conference a few years ago, and they they introduced this amazing concept called ESG. What is ESG? E is supposed to be environmental, S is supposed to be social, and G is supposed to be governance. Environmental, social, and governance. What does that have to do with profitability? Well, not a lot. So uh, his question directly is, are ESG returns really less? And there's a lot of articles and a lot of people being quoted as saying, yeah, generally they're less returned. The answer to that is, is more nuanced, I think, because it depends on what you're talking about. Um, if you're talking about social or governance, an ESG company in a considered ESG with a high rating in Saudi Arabia is using a very, very different metric of measurement than somebody in the United States. This is a country that is still debating whether or not it's legal for a woman to drive a car. Um, so which part of the S or the G is that good for? But they could have a great rating because a company in Saudi Arabia is doing better on that front than other companies in Saudi Arabia. So is that company going to outperform other companies in Saudi Arabia? Maybe, but generally when we look at the ESG rating, it's more of a marketing thing. Or when they do it, it's because it's profitable to do it rather than they've set that as the goal for their company. So Walmart has put solar panels on its roofs of its stores across the country. Well, why did they do that? Well, because solar panels have now gotten to the point where the technology is pretty efficient and it costs less than being on the grid. Does that make Walmart an ESG company? Well, the E in ESG is about ecology. Anybody that's listened to us for the past several weeks has heard me say that I don't think renewable energy falls into the ecological label that it used to because it's becoming profitable and it's going to become mainstream. And then people will say lithium mining is bad. It's not ecologically sound and so on. So this is a great example. You might say that Walmart's ESG, they just raised the wages for their employees. Kind of, this is a voluntary thing across the nation. They raised wages. They're not being told by some union with a stranglehold on them that they've got to do this. They recognize that they need to treat their employees well so that people continue to go to the store, so that they're treating well, treated well when they get to the store, the customers are treated well. well that means you've got to compensate your employees. You've got to train them well. Okay, does that make them socially good because they've raised the wages? Well, yeah. It would say for these matters, it's called an ESG company. So Walmart might be considered an ESG company and a fanatical ecological warrior company that never intends to make a profit is also considered an ESG company. So you really have to look at the nuances. ESG is a nice label, but if that's the only reason why you're making your decisions, you're probably going to be less profitable. 
And the other thing about ESG, ESG is, and Jake mentioned this, but it's very poorly defined. The company can say we're ESG and a fund can say we're an ESG fund. But unless you dig very, very deeply and you do very, very careful research and don't just look at their propaganda, you really don't know whether they're ESG or not. They can exactly. put on a facade of ESG. ESG is a fad right now. And it means a lot more money will come to buy the stock at this moment because there's a lot of money out there. And, and the people, there's good reason for this. If you feel like a company is doing, is being profitable and they have good ethics, that's a really good reason to consider buying them. And if you consider ethics as being ecologically sensitive, socially aware, and having good governance, then it, it's a good metric to use when you're looking at the other things involved in the company. You shouldn't use it as your only reason for buying and selling. I read an article recently in the Wall Street Journal, and I can't cite the exact date or the article, but it basically said that some companies, in order to get an ESG rating, were taking their polluting and their poorly managed, or their, their poorly, poorly supervised, and well, I don't know, whatever, basically non-socially well, well look, good-looking activities and spending them off into subsidiaries. So they kept all the clean ones in their main company that showed up on the annual report and claimed ESG when they really weren't. So it's it's a very, very difficult thing to nail down. It's kind of like when people used to say they didn't want uh, they they didn't want firearms, what was it, firearms or, or something else, firearms and military spending or something right. like that in their yeah. portfolio. It's really, really hard to nail that down because in many cases, the company that you're investing in has subsidiaries that are doing something completely different and that don't necessarily show up. And this, this is an area we've talked about in the past because there are people that have religious guidelines on whether or not they should invest in something. A common one from a very fundamentalist type Baptist would be say no alcohol, no tobacco, no pornography. Yeah, well, that sounds very much like the, the Quran's teachings as well. So a lot of people look at that and say, well, this is, this is a Muslim thing. Not necessarily. So it's religious based. And what we can say for, uh, with a great deal of certainty is that now you cannot buy Marriott or Hilton or Exxon because Exxon owns convenience stores and convenience stores sell cigarettes. Marriott and Hilton have porn channels. So you can see where this can become very limited when you get into the social area or the governance area. What are their subsidiaries? Where are they making all their profit? And you can lower your ability to make a profit on the ethical side of their business because they have some kind of, according to some opinion or another, some kind of a dirty side to their business. So just take it all with a grain of salt. It's far more effective. If you want to do your research, be careful who you buy products from. Yeah. Trying to invest according to ESG is very likely going to lead you down a primrose path that doesn't really exist. And a, and a great example here. We've got other questions that are stacking up in the background. Uh, another example of this is CalPERS. And I don't mean a tool that you use to measure widths. I mean uh, the Cali California Pension Retirement System. Uh, it's very well known that is this activist group that when they buy into a company, they're now going to try to influence that company to do things according to their activist type agenda that don't necessarily have anything to do with profitability, just in somehow increasing social justice. Well, there's a really good 
track record of that not working well for CalPERS, of it actually destroying companies that CalPERS bought that were profitable. So that's kind of the, the answer in the nutshell, is that if the only reason why you're doing your investing is for activist purposes, rather than to become part of the organization that you're buying into, it's not really investing. It's still speculation. And it's speculation without intent of profit. Oh, we're about out of time. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, there's a local line with voicemail uh, at 947-1111, or you can can do the same line, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, or you can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. We'll be back next hour with more of The Personal Wealth Coach.